Well, this is the Sunday after Christmas. The Messiah has come, born as a baby and greeted by shepherds. The one who was promised as the fulfillment of Israel's hopes and dreams. Next Sunday is actually Epiphany Sunday, technically. The word Epiphany comes from the Koine Greek and means manifestation or appearance. We're celebrating Epiphany today because it works with our schedule. We do follow the liturgical calendar somewhat, but not religiously, I guess you could say. Epiphany is a feast day that celebrates the revelation of God incarnate in Jesus Christ. And Epiphany is celebrated in different ways, depending on whether you're in the Eastern Church or the Western Church. In the West, this day celebrates the revelation of Jesus to the Magi. And it's on January the 6th. And Epiphany Sunday would be the Sunday before that, next Sunday. It's sometimes called Three Kings Day. And Epiphany Eve is known as Twelfth Night. I was talking with, with Jan. I think the advantage that the liturgical churches have over some of the others is that they get to celebrate and observe Advent, Advent for a whole month, then Christmas, until January the 6th. So it's a much longer period of celebration instead of just Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. But that's okay. They can do that. The Magi were Gentiles. So Epiphany is a commemoration of the Messiah's revelation to the Gentiles. And in the East, this day celebrates the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. In some of the Eastern churches, the date is actually 13, 13 days later than it is in the Western church because they still hold to the old Julian calendar, which is different than the Gregorian calendar that we go by. After baptizing Jesus, the next day John declared that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Both celebrations of this feast day commemorate the fact that the Messiah had come, not just for the Jews, but for the rest of the world as well. So on this day of our commemoration of Epiphany, we come to a passage in Isaiah that tells of a time when one will come who will be revealed as God to both Jews and Gentiles and who will make everything right. Now, for a bit of context, Isaiah was writing this to a people who had forsaken their God. He was telling them, telling them about the judgment that was coming on them. At the same time, this chapter is part of what's called the Book of Comfort, which is chapters 40 to 66. In this section of Isaiah, God tells of a coming restoration for his people including the coming of his beloved servant. In chapters 63 and 64, the prayer of the people through Isaiah is that God would come down and forgive them and would heal their land. Isaiah 64, verses 8 through 12 says, Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. 
We are the clay, you are the potter, and are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a desert. Even Zion is a desert, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple, where our fathers praised you, has been burned with fire, and all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, O Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? Isaiah 65 is the response to that prayer. In verses 2 to 7, God addresses those who have rejected him, his people. He calls them an obstinate people who have turned away from his outstretched hands. These people had spurned God. They walked in their own way. They constantly provoked him by the things that they did, including sacrificing to idols, coming in contact with dead bodies, going out into the tombs, eating pigs, which was a definite no-no for the Jewish people, and other unclean meat in their soups and so on. And in verse 5, they claim to be so holy that God shouldn't even come near them. They said, I'm more holy than you. Stay away from me. It's kind of strange. But their self-righteousness was a stinking smoke in God's nostrils rather than a sweet smell from pure sacrifices. You know, an attitude of self-righteousness where we think that we're better than others that somehow God is lucky to have us, can be very, very dangerous. In verses 6 and 7, God declares that he will bring judgment on them in full payment for their deeds. Let's go back to verse 1. Before speaking of Israel's sins and the judgment that was coming on them, God says something very interesting. This is the reason we're looking at this passage on the day that we celebrate Epiphany. God, through Isaiah, states that he has revealed himself to people who have not asked for him and has been found by those who have not sought him. He has said, here am I, here am I, to a nation that has not called on his name. Isaiah is speaking of the Gentiles. And we know this because in Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul, in the middle of his uh, passage where he's talking about the Jews' rejection of the Messiah, he writes this, verses 20 to 21. Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So Isaiah makes this bold statement, telling the Jews that God is going to, ju to judge them for their rejection of him, while revealing himself to the Gentiles who weren't looking for him. Now, if you remember, the Jews were not overly fond of the Gentiles. Called them dogs, 
probably some other unmentionable things. Some of the early church fathers believed that this statement was one of the things that got Isaiah killed by being sawn in half. I mean, think about it. The Jews thinking they are the people of God. And here comes Isaiah saying, God says, I'm going to reveal myself to the people you hate, to the Gentiles. In verses 8 through 10, Isaiah speaks of the blessing that God will give to those of his people who have not totally rejected him. He states that there is still a remnant who are faithful. And just as you would preserve a cluster of grapes that still had some juice in it, God is going to preserve those who still were his servants. Even in the midst of everything that was happening to Israel, God was going to preserve a remnant. He was not going to abandon his people completely. On the other hand, those who rejected the mercy of God, who refused to listen and turn from their ways, these would be destroyed. Unfortunately, not everyone who claimed to be a servant of God was a true servant. That's just as true today as it was back then. As Paul wrote in Romans 9, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Verses 11 and 12 speak again of the judgment to fall on those who have rejected God. Because they followed false gods and did not listen to the Lord, but chose what displeased him, the sword would fall on them and they would be slaughtered. Verses 13 through 16 continue the comparison between those who remain faithful, God's servants, and the false servants who refuse to listen and turn back. God's servants will eat, but the false servants will go hungry. God's servants will drink and rejoice. The false servants will go thirsty and be put to shame. God's servants will sing for joy, but the false servants will wail in anguish. God's servants will be given a new name and will swear by God's name and be a blessing. The false servants will have their name used as a curse. Whoever invokes a blessing will do so by the name of the one true God or the God of truth. One commentator has translated this as the God of Amen. So be it. Verse 16 ends with the statement that the past troubles will be forgotten and hid from God's eyes. God said something similar in Jeremiah chapter 31, wherein verses 33 and 34 is a fairly familiar passage, I think, to most of us. God says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. The past troubles being forgotten, the sins of the people being remembered no more, as in Jeremiah, comes about through what God has said that he will do in verses 17 to 25. 
In these verses, we have the description of the new heavens and the new earth that is to come. God, through Isaiah, says he is creating a new heavens, a new earth. These will not be like the old heavens and earth, and the old will be forgotten. Jerusalem, that city that was a reproach to the name of God, will be a delight, and God will rejoice over it. There will be no more weeping. It will be a place of life. Now, verses 20 to 25 are usually interpreted in one of two ways. There are those who look literally at these verses, especially verse 20, and see them as a picture of a future millennial kingdom. Verse 20 speaks of a time when there is very long life, but death still happens. The reasoning goes, if there's long life, and yet people still die, well, then this passage can't be talking about the final new heavens and new earth. The mention of the serpent eating dust in verse 25 is interpreted as meaning that Satan will still be around, even though he is chained for that thousand years. Now, others see these verses as figuratively speaking of the ultimate victory over Satan, sin, and death. The perfect world to come, the new creation that will be the new Eden, is pictured poetically in the description of the wolf eating with the lamb and the lion eating straw like the ox. The serpent will finally be crushed. There will be nothing to cause harm or to destroy. There will be perfect peace and rest in this new heavens and this new earth. And all of this will come about through the Messiah. Now, the Jews did expect this to be fulfilled when Messiah came. That's what they were looking for with Jesus. That's what all that anticipation was about. When we talk about Advent, that's what we're talking about back in the first century. The Jews were anticipating this new heaven and new earth. Many of them were bitterly disappointed when Jesus seemed not to fulfill those hopes and dreams. Even the disciples, when Jesus was crucified, for a while there, were crushed. The problem the Jews had is they were looking for a fulfillment that fit their agenda, that restored Israel to a place of prominence in the world as a nation. Put them back on top. What they didn't realize is that the promise in Jeremiah 33 was, and in Isaiah 65, was fulfilled in Jesus. According to 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Literally, The new creation has come, or even more literally in the Greek, new creation. If anyone is in in Christ, new creation is here, literally. The old has passed away, and all things have become new. Now, we might look around us and wonder where this new creation is. 
especially after the year that the world has had. We see sin. We see injustice, oppression, people mocking God. We see disease, death. We see people throwing themselves at the feet of the powers that be, asking for deliverance. We seem to see very little reverence for God, even from those who claim to know him. We long for deliverance, for a savior, for a king. The difference is we believe that we live in what's called the already but not yet. The king has come and he's coming back. The kingdom has come and it will come in its fullness. The restoration of creation has begun and it will be completed when Jesus returns. In the midst of all the evil we see, we also see flashes of new creation. In the birth of a baby, in the restoration of a relationship, in a person coming to faith in Jesus, in many other acts of love toward God and toward others. The kingdom is all around us, even though its final consummation is yet to come. As commentator Lawrence Richards says, however students of prophecy sort these elements out, it is clear from Isaiah's warm and comforting description of God that a real transformation of man's state and nature lies ahead. Sin's curse is lifted, lifespan is extended, and peace is brought even to the animal kingdom. All that is wrong on earth will be set right. When you read prophecies of doom, an atomic holocaust, a greenhouse effect that will melt the ice caps and cause the oceans to overflow our cities, a new ice age that will destroy life on earth. Do not fear. The real destiny of earth is described here by Isaiah. We believe that we are followers of the King of Kings and citizens of the kingdom of God. We believe that he will return and will finally consummate the kingdom and set all things right. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray.